recent national study found that a smaller percentage of American households is now donating. What does that mean as we fundraise? Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and this is the first day from the fundraising school. Joining me today is Dr. Tim Seiler of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy and the longtime director of the fundraising school who has literally taught fundraising around the world for the better part of the last three decades. And Tim, one of these uh, studies just came out from our school uh, tied into watching donor behavior and found that between the year 2000 and the year 2014, we went from about two-thirds of households being charitably active to about 54%, an 11 percentage point decline. And people wonder, is this still a good time for fundraising? Is this still a good time for fundraising? Oh, I, th I think it is. It's still a good time for fundraising. It might be harder and uh, might continue to be harder rather than easier for the next few years, but I still think it's a good time. I, you know, we have good causes and you have a good case for support. It's good. It's good time to invite people to participate. You know, when I saw this research, I thought of the teaching you've always had when we have economic downturns, when we have a recession, when we have the Great Recession, people wonder, you know, is this it? What can I possibly do? You've emphasized so often, it's always important for us to have our fundraising fundamentals in place, but never more so than when mm -hmm. we see data like this. What advice do you have for fundraisers in terms of maintaining those fundamentals? Right. Well, I use the phrase stay the course. You know, mm -hmm. It's not mine, but, but it works. Um, good, compelling case for support. Make sure you can, you can articulate that case for support. Stay close to donors. Um, keep inviting other people to participate. I think there's always the opportunity to find new people and encourage them to participate. Um, one of the things that I think may be the most important, this will sound counterintuitive to people, mm -hmm. But I think one of the most important things about fundraising is having the right people associated with your organization. Say more about that. Well, I'm going to go back to a, one of the very first books in fundraising called Designs for Fundraising by Harold Seymour, known as Cy Seymour. Okay. Uh, some of the people who are a little bit more chronologically advantaged, as I am, <laughs> will recognize that name. Um, very slim little volume, published in the late 1960s, as I recall. But uh, at the time, I think the only how-to fundraising book that was in existence, mm -hmm. at least as far as I know, um, and he said in that book that nonprofits need people more than they need money. Mm -hmm. If you have the right people associated with you, the money will almost certainly follow. I think that's good advice. So I think if you have the right people sitting on your board and they are com uh, passionate and committed to your cause and are willing to help, um, identify others, they bring them to the table. It's the old connect the dots, who knows whom, and how can they get them involved in the organization? You know, Tim, when we talk about these fundraising fundamentals, I'm so glad you raised the board. I know when I've recruited board members, you know, sometimes a nonprofit will say, well, we're going to recruit for wealth. Who has the big bank account? Well, certainly that can be fine. Of course, you won't have economic diversity on your board if you do that. Uh, and there may be other aspects of diversity that suffer as well. I always loved recruiting board members for their Rolodex, for their contact <laughs> list, because they know a lot of people and can bring like-minded people to the table. So the board is right, one of these fundamentals. Right. I remember that well, Bill, from, from serving on your board, Yes, that you always reminded people to look at their Rolodex. In fact, I tell that story frequently when I teach in the fundraising school, that uh, what I think was one of the best and strategic, most strategic uh, steps you took as the president and CEO of the organization was reminding the board that they have people they can bring to the table and, and encourage them to do so. I remember you and Karen 
uh, Mills, the former vice president at the organization. Uh, I remember you talking at board meetings about name storming. Yes. And we'd spend five to 15 minutes, I recall every board meeting, and we'd think, okay, who'd you find on your Rolodex this time around? And that always <laughs> took our fundraising to the next level of success. Tim, you often say in our classes that failing to plan is planning to fail. And again, one of these fundamentals is always having a strong plan in place. And then how important is it to revisit that plan? How important is it to be measuring the techniques that are carrying out that plan, bolstering the ones that work and maybe getting rid of the ones that don't? Well, as hard as it is to do, it's, it's uh, absolutely critical to review the plan because the, you know, the old, the poet, the best laid plans of mice and men yes. and women, I guess we should offer in there, yes. but the best laid plans, they're going to change. And in today's environment, they're going to change rapidly, probably more rapidly, or not probably, but perhaps more rapidly than before because things change so rapidly in the environment, your plan is going to have to change accordingly. But it's important to revisit it. It's important to monitor that plan, make midstream corrections if necessary. Uh, the plan itself is, is only as good as your execution of that plan. I, I like to tell stories about, um, I've heard from some consultants who talk about going in to do an audit of a fundraising program and say, do you have a fundraising plan? And the chief executive or the director of development will say, well, of course we have a fundraising plan. The consultant says, well, can I see it? And the director of development says, if I can find it, <laughs> there's a plan that's not going to do anybody any yeah. good, right? It's on a shelf somewhere. It's in a file somewhere. It's on somebody's computer. But yeah, you have to revisit the plan. You have to monitor it. You have to make corrections as necessary. So we need as many people as possible engaged in fundraising, starting with our board. We also can include our volunteers, our donors, certainly our staff, to continue to reach out to expand the number of people who are aware of the possibility of donating to our organizations. We need a strong plan with effective techniques. We need to continue to revisit that plan and those techniques. Tim, what about staying close to our donors? How does that work without always asking them for a gift all the time? Well, you should stay close to them. We should stay close to our donors and we should in fact visit them, call them, write them notes uh, on occasions that, are, that we're not asking. We thank them, uh, thank them regularly, thank them often. Um, ask them for advice, ask them for others they might bring to the table or that uh, they can open a door we can go talk to. But certainly one of the, one of the um, biggest mistakes I think we make is we, we talk to our donors only when we want to ask them for money. Yeah. And I think one of the worst things that we could hear from a donor is the only time I ever hear from you or see you is when you want to ask me for money. We don't want that to happen. In fact, it's one of the top reasons people stop donating is the only time I ever hear from the organization is they're asking me for a gift. Right. And that wears out a donor very quickly. Tim, yes. along those lines, again, this generosity for life study has found an 11 percentage point decline in the number of households that are charitably active in the United States. Still more than half of the households are involved with charity and philanthropy. But what happens if I've had a long-term donor who drops out? Can I contact that donor? Is that allowed? Is, is that kind of part of the protocol? Or should I just uh, not stay in touch with them after they've stopped donating? Well, if they stop donating and we don't contact them, we'll never know why they stopped. Mm -hmm. And they might have stopped for reasons that we have no control or even influence over. They might have stopped for a reason that we do have something to influence or say or we can change their mind. But if we don't contact them, we'll never know that. So not only is it allowed, I, I think it should be encouraged that we contact donors if they stop giving. It's easy to do that politely. 
and find out, you know, what, what has changed that you've, you've decided not to support us this year or this month, you know, whatever it might be. And we're talking about looking at enhancing our fundraising and making sure that uh, we're keeping the most number of people involved uh, as part of our organization. And Tim, what about utilizing volunteers? I mean, obviously board members are volunteers, but I think about those people, they volunteer at my nonprofit and, and a fundraiser might think, well, they're already giving their time. And so maybe I should not involve them uh, in terms of either giving themselves and introducing others to the organization. Mm -hmm. Is there a possibility there again as we hear that there might be fewer households engaged maybe we're not asking our volunteers enough uh, I think that we're probably not asking our volunteers enough to to give financially as well as their time and their expertise uh, I base that comment on the number of courses that we teach through the fundraising school where this comes up so regularly yes and people th that reluctance comes out and said well they're giving their time we can't ask them to give money too those are exactly the people that we should be inviting to make financial contributions because they're telling us they care about the organization that's the you know that's the interest piece of our linkage ability and interest so absolutely encourage volunteers to give financially. In fact, data show that those people who volunteer are more likely to give financially and are more likely to give at a higher rate than those who do not volunteer. In fact, according to the Corporation for National Service, as many as 80% of your volunteers will donate if they're treated well. And of course, as they become donors, might then introduce other potential donors to the organization as well. Dr. Tim Seiler is a longtime director of the Fundraising School, now the Henry Rosso Fellow in Philanthropic Studies at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, and still one of our master teachers at the Fundraising School. Uh, you can learn about all of our courses uh, on our website at philanthropy.iupui.edu forward slash the Fundraising School. You can also gain quick access on our Fundraising School app, which is available free wherever you purchase apps and uh, obtain apps for your smart devices. We also have quarterly webinars, custom training that can come to you, all sorts of ways that we can assist you and strengthen your fundraising. And it is still a great time to be a fundraiser. I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and you are now fully informed on this first day from the Fundraising School. Mm -hmm.